Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. The governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, recently signed off on an animal cruelty bill I want to tell you about. I was sent a press release on this news story, and it showed a heartbreaking video clip of dogs and cats who were victims of horrible cases of animal abuse in the state of Mississippi. I started to watch it, but I couldn't get through it. It was just too difficult to watch. I'm not going to tell you about the details of what I saw, because if you're anything like me, you don't want to hear the details. And just like I turned off the video attached to this press release, you'll tune me out and won't listen to what I have to say. And you and I can continue to ask ourselves, how can humans be capable of inflicting such unimaginable, unthinkable acts of cruelty upon dogs and cats? But the fact of the matter is, humans are capable of it. A better question is what the hell is wrong with people? To want to torture, abuse, mistreat, neglect a dog or a cat. As I said, the governor of the state of Mississippi recently signed off on an animal cruelty bill. Now, up until now, in Mississippi, animal abusers could do pretty much whatever they want to do to an animal. And the punishment would amount to a slap on the wrist. Under this new animal cruelty law, Animal abusers will be charged with a felony on their first offense of aggregated cruelty. Also, they will face a count of felony aggravated cruelty for each animal harmed. The new legislation also doubles the penalties for second felony offense, with second-time offenders now facing up to $10,000 in fine and or up to 10 years in prison. And I'll just tell you, before this new law, animal abusers, psychopaths, would be charged a felony for the worst case of abuse you could imagine only if they committed a second offense within five years of their first conviction. So you torture a dog or cat the first time, you essentially get away with it. You torture another dog or cat five years and one day later, you still get away with it. Who's the compassionate genius who came up with this legislation? You get to abuse one animal for free and wait five years and you get to abuse a second animal for free. Unbelievable. And also, prior to this bill, a person would only be charged with a single count of animal cruelty regardless of how many dogs or cats were involved in the incident. So you can starve your five dogs to death. It would only be counted as a single charge. So obviously, this new animal cruelty bill is way overdue And it still doesn't go far enough, if you ask me, but here we are. At least we're making progress in terms of animal cruelty legislation in the state of Mississippi. Now, for the past 14 years, an animal welfare organization called Animal Legal Defense Fund, or ALDF, and like they sound, they are a legal advocacy organization for animals, they release an annual U.S. Animal Protection Law Rankings Report which ranks the animal protection laws of all 50 states. So they rank our states from one to 50, one being the state with the best animal protection laws and 50 being the state with the worst or weakest laws to protect animals. The rankings are based on a comprehensive review of each jurisdiction's animal protection laws, including over 3,000 pages of statutes. And this report comes out at the end of each year. 
So their 2020 report has not been released yet. And last year, we had Diane Balkin on the show. She is senior staff attorney for Animal Legal Defense Fund's criminal justice program. Diane talked about ALDF's 2018 report. She spoke about their methodology in doing these rankings. She told us which states ranked best and worst for having comprehensive and strong laws, as well as some of the trends they are seeing. And you can listen to my full interview with Diane on the website or podcast. Just go to animalstodayradio.com, and it was the show of March 2019. And I'm going to circle back to the new Mississippi law, which I started the segment talking about. But let's first quickly look at ALDF's last two reports, 2018 and 2019, because I think you're going to find this interesting. So 2018 report indicated By the way, I'm just going to give you the summary of the report. You can review the entire report on ALDF's website. So in 2018, for 11 years in a row, Illinois took first place, meaning Illinois was the best state for animal protection, followed by Oregon being number two, Maine, number three, Colorado was number four, and Massachusetts was number five. The five states with the strongest animal protection laws, Oregon, Maine, Colorado, Massachusetts, and Illinois remaining in the number one position for 11 years in a row. The state of Kentucky was ranked the last place for the 12th consecutive year, and Mississippi was number 49, second to last. Iowa, 48, Utah, 47, and New Mexico, 46. These were the states with the weakest animal protection laws. And this 2018 report states that Louisiana, which was ranked seven, and Massachusetts, which was ranked five, were the most improved states in 2018, in part because both states markedly improved their laws banning the sexual assault of animals. That's just lovely, isn't it? Massachusetts comes out with a bestiality statute, which was part of Massachusetts' Comprehensive Pause 2 Act, a bill that made improvements to numerous animal protection laws. Louisiana also passed two other animal protection laws concerning the safety of dogs and cats in extreme weather conditions. Now in 2019, so this is ALDF's latest report last year, and again, this is just a summary and the entire report can be downloaded and viewed on their website. 2019, Illinois is still the best state for animal protection now for 12 years in a row, followed by Oregon, Colorado, Maine, and Rhode Island. And remember I said the prior year, 2018, the state of Kentucky was ranked last place for 12 consecutive years? Well, for the first time since this reporting, Kentucky breaks its losing streak. Kentucky was not the worst state for animal protection. What state do you think is now in the number 50th position? Mississippi, bottom of the list, weakest animal protection laws. Also at the bottom, Iowa, New Mexico, Kentucky, still part of the worst 50 states, and Wyoming. Okay, the most improved states in 2019, New Hampshire, ranked at 14, and Montana at 37. And their report states that this is in part because both states updated their laws regarding what procedures are followed after an animal has been seized from a suspected abuse or neglect situation. 
Montana now requires that a bond be posted covering the costs of caring for a seized animal up until trial. New Hampshire also enacted laws mandating post-conviction possession bans and laws prohibiting animal fighting paraphernalia, two of the year's major trends. And continuing on their 2019 report, trends highlighted in the rankings report include possession bans and animal fighting paraphernalia laws. Possession bans are post-conviction remedies that allow courts to prohibit convicted animal abusers from owning or living in the same household as an animal. Well, that makes sense, right? You abuse an animal, you should not be able to own or live with another animal. You think that would be universal, right? You abuse an animal, you're banned from getting another one. Well, according to ALDF, this is a continuing trend. And 12 states have created or strengthened their possession ban statutes over the past two years. Also, a new trend in 2019 was the emergence of animal fighting paraphernalia laws, which define and criminalize the possession of objects and instruments used to further animal fighting ventures. In 2019, four states adopted animal fighting paraphernalia laws. Animal Legal Defense Fund Executive Director Stephen Wells states, Every year, we see more states enacting broader legal protections for animals. This tremendous progress is detailed in the rankings report. We have a long way to go until animals are fully protected under the legal system as they deserve, especially in the lowest ranking states, but elsewhere as well. And that's why we fight so hard in our legal work for animals. But as this year's ranking report shows, step by step, we as a nation are improving how the law treats animals. And this continues the U.S. Animal Protection State Laws Rankings Report lays out a clear path forward for all jurisdictions to strengthen legislation. The rankings are based on a comprehensive review of each jurisdiction's animal protection laws, including over 3,000 pages of statutes. This is the longest running and most authoritative report of its kind and tracks which states are prioritizing animal protection and working to improve their laws. So as I said, according to this reporting, for 12 years in a row, Kentucky was ranked the worst state in terms of protecting our animals. But for the first time in 2019, Mississippi took the lead at being the most pathetic animal protecting state. And then you have this new animal cruelty bill in Mississippi. This is what I started this segment talking about. An animal abuser will be charged with a felony on their first offense of aggravated cruelty instead of slapping the wrist of the psychopath on his first conviction and then a second slap of the wrist when he abuses another animal after five years of his first conviction. So in Mississippi, every five years, you get to abuse an animal. Okay, but now it's a felony on their first offense. And in addition, the abuser will face a count of felony aggravated cruelty for each animal harmed. So you see your state now being ranked the worst state in the country, even worse than the state which was ranked the worst state for 12 years in a row, and that's Kentucky. Do you think this report inspired lawmakers in Mississippi to start to get their act together and do a better job at protecting our animals? Maybe, right? And I will predict, because of this new law, when ALDF's 2020 report comes out, Mississippi will no longer be number 50, and we'll see if Kentucky reclaims their familiar position at the worst state in our country when it comes to protecting our animals. And I'll let you know. Okay, don't go away. More with the animals today, right after the break. 
Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs, but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between two and four pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns, where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs, and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kiss. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to Animals Today. Hey, Lori. Peter. Okay, more hot animal news. And, uh, you know, greyhound racing is still quite popular in Ireland. Although it is shrinking a, a little bit, it is heavily subsidized by their Department of Agriculture. Anyway, there's a big backlash because recently there was a TV documentary reporting that thousands of dogs are killed each year related to this industry. Uh, this was called RTE Investigates, Greyhounds Running for Their Lives. And uh, in this investigative uh, report, they stated that 5,987 greyhounds were slaughtered in 2017 because they failed to make qualification times or their performance declined. Isn't that incredible? Tragic. The program also reported the use of performance-enhancing drugs, not surprising, and also EPO, erythropoietin, which, as you know, increases the red blood cell count and dangerously thickens their blood. And as I mentioned earlier, the Department of Agriculture, they are going to give almost 17 million euros to the Irish Greyhound Board this year, which is amazing. And there's a response to this as expected. The Irish Greyhound Board blamed the abuses on an irresponsible minority within the industry that it vowed to root out. Shocking, right? And here's another element of this, Lori, and that is the dogs that die or are euthanized on the racetrack. Nearly 250 greyhounds uh, were euthanized uh, on humane grounds last year, and many just simply died from sudden death. Reminds you of the horse racing deal here in the States, doesn't it? It sure does. Yeah. And just to remind you here in the States, greyhound racing is diminishing significantly, and most of the tracks have now been closed, but we all are pushing hard to uh, close the final remaining dog racing tracks. Okay, I have some good news to report. You know, famous Mayo Clinic. I know. Mayo yeah, Clinic, yeah. right? Mayo Brothers. <laughs> Has ended its use of live animals in training emergency medicine residents. A little late to the party, I would say. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Apparently, credit goes to the organization Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. We like them. They filed a complaint asking the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service to investigate Mayo Clinic's use of pigs in once a year emergency medical training. This complaint alleged that Mayo Clinic's use of live animals violated the Federal Animal Welfare Act. Mayo Clinic declined to comment about the details or how the pigs are used each year. According to the Physicians Committee Group, 96% of surveyed emergency medicine residency programs in the U.S. and Canada do not use any animals for any aspect of that training. So really, this is long overdue. Dr. John Pippin of the Physicians Committee, he's been on the show numerous times. I think he's just great. He said... 
It was the right move for Mayo Clinic to modernize its curriculum. Human-based training methods can better prepare residents to perform life-saving procedures. In a statement from Mayo Clinics, it read in part, these decisions, meaning to stop using live animals in their training, are always based on what is the best interest of our patients and trainees, and we will continue to assess our curriculum so that tomorrow's doctors can provide the safest, highest quality care to patients everywhere. No, their decision was not based on what is the best interest for patients and trainees. Their decision was based on the complaint filed against them. It's so funny. It is very transparent. And the other thing about that statement that strikes me is that absolutely no regard is given to the animals at all. It's zero. It's not like a, right. it's not like a balancing act at all. It's, right. So that was another interesting part of that. You know. Also, again, credit to our friends at Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, Maine Medical Center based in Portland, Maine, which serves the entire state as well as northern New England, will no longer be using live animals in its emergency medicine residency program program, and they will now exclusively use high-quality non-animal training methods, which are available in the center's simulation lab. Isn't that better in a simulation lab where you have human patient simulators that replicate human anatomy and physiology rather than learning on a completely different species of animal? Yeah, these models are very realistic and uh, widely available now. Yeah, don't you wish we had these simulation-based medical training when we went to medical school, Peter? And especially in our residency programs. I, listeners might not know, Peter and I are both eye doctors. We're ophthalmologists. We're eye surgeons. On people. On people. And in my residency program, we practice surgery on pig's eyes. Yeah, we did rabbits. How valuable was that to you? Not at all, right? Well, it would have been better to have a realistic model, I'll right. say that. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I believe there are now 11 remaining emergency medicine residency programs in the U.S. and Canada that use live animals. All the other programs use modern human-based training methods, which accurately replicate human anatomy, and that also allow for repeated practice. New research shows there are hundreds of sharks and rays who become tangled in plastic waste in the world's oceans. The most common plastic to trap the sharks and rays was abandoned fishing gear. They gave it an example, and I saw the video online, of a short fin mako shark with fishing cord wrapped tightly around it. One of the scientists said the shark had clearly continued growing after becoming entangled, so the rope, which was covered in barnacles, had dug into the shark's skin and damaged its spine. It was so sad to see the video. She goes on to say it's important to understand the range of threats facing these species, which are among the most threatened in the oceans. Additionally, there's a real animal welfare issue because entanglements can cause pain, suffering, and even death. Other waste in our oceans include strapping bands used in packaging, polythene bags, and rubber ties. You know, Peter, polyethylene is by far the most popular type of plastic used in the world today. Most of your household items that we use in our everyday lives comes from polyethylene, like sandwich bags, cling wrap. It's the coatings that you see on fruit juice boxes. The plastic wrapping around the meat or chicken or ground beef you might buy is made of polyethylene. Anyway, just so you know, in the USA, only 8% of plastic is recycled. The rest ends up in landfills, or it remains uncollected and can wash into the sea. There are trillions of pieces of plastic in the ocean, and it's estimated that there are 8 million tons being added every single year. 
as you already know, plastic has harmful consequences on the sea life. And not only can these marine animals get tangled in it and cause severe damage or death to the animal, but plastic breaks down into small particles called microplastics. And fish and seals, turtles, and other marine animals swim along and they eat these microplastics because they mistake them for food. And then you have the smaller fish are eaten by the larger fish, and these harmful chemicals keep moving up the food chain, which then can lead to poisoned marine life, including birds and other animals who live off the sea. So this ocean trash is really having harmful consequences on the sea life and everyone. So how can you help reduce plastic pollution in our beautiful oceans? Take litter home with you. Don't leave it behind. Limit your use of plastic bottles. Purchase a reusable bottle rather than a bunch of plastic bottles. In addition, limit your use of plastic in general, like plastic bags, plastic ware, coffee cup lids, and recycle your plastic so less end up in landfills. Don't use microbeads. You know what microbeads are, Peter? Oh, yeah. Those are the tiny little plastic uh, spheres that can be used as part of cosmetics like scrubs and, uh, and bath products. They end up in the seas as well. Exactly. So when it comes to plastic use, reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Easy to remember and with little effort, easy to do. Thanks for listening to Animals Today. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 12th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to the show. Lori and I recently learned about a a very interesting uh, private consulting and strategy organization in the animal world. I think that describes it. We'll let the guest uh, correct me if need be. Uh, It's called Animal Policy Group, and we thought it would be fun to have on its uh, founder and managing partner, Mark Cushing. He is a longtime political strategist. He's worked in government regulatory advisory capacities. He's been a corporate executive and a former litigator, and he's got a, a new book. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here, Peter. Thank you. Okay, so tell us the uh, name of the book. It's it's available uh, September 8th, and it's Pet Nation, the, Lo- the Love Affair That Changed America. We'll look forward to that. What is Animal Policy Group, and uh, how did it get started? Well, it's, it's a group now. Uh, there's a total of eight of us. Uh, I started it and, and owned the group. I'm an attorney by, by training, and in 2005, I was called to solve a problem uh, related to the pet industry, uh, and I was working in Washington, D.C. as a lobbyist and, and had success with that, and 15 years later, I'm now in my 15th year of full-time work in the in the field of animal welfare, pets, and pet health care, as well as veterinary college accreditation, and I'm the only, I have the only group that does something like that. So we deal with political, regulatory, industry, strategic issues across the pet space with more focus than anything on pet healthcare related issues and and veterinary college issues but also a good deal of animal welfare issues that that involve every aspect of the pet world particularly cats and dogs yeah 
Uh, maybe we could uh, learn a little bit about how you interact in the uh, veterinary college university. We frequently talk about what's going on there, particularly related to things like terminal surgeries and uh, how tough it is for newly, freshly minted vets to even make a living. They have huge debts. Tell us a little about that. I represent or represent 10 separate uh, veterinary colleges, and I'm the one that is usually retained to get a new college started. It's been an industry that has not welcomed growth, despite the fact that, that the, the greatest problem facing every veterinary practice in America, regardless of where you're located, ur urban, suburban, rural, is the shortage of veterinarians and the inability to hire. That's improved the situation for new grads. Starting salaries are significantly higher than even three years ago, which helps pay off student debt. But uh, like a lot of professional programs, there's been a tendency to want to keep the club small. Yeah. And, and I've been the person leading the charge to, to expand class sizes, uh, expand opportunities. People want to become veterinarians, particularly with the surge of interest in companion animals around the country. So um, that's been my involvement. Somewhat related, maybe you could tell us about uh, medications that are prescribed for uh, animals, dogs and cats. And uh, um, maybe you have a, maybe, and, and, I, and it wouldn't surprise me if you have an opinion about vaccinations. It seems to me as a consumer that uh, our dogs and cats are given a lot of vaccinations that are sort of sketchy. Am I uh, perceiving this correctly? Yeah, yeah I would... Uh... I think that's overstated. You know, I think there are people that have opinions about certain vaccinations, but uh, we don't have a chronic uh, problem in the United States of over-vaccinated cats or dogs. Um, and there's been a history, unfortunately, of, of too many pet owners only feeling that they need to go see a veterinarian with their dog or cat uh, to get a vaccine, and then maybe there'll be an exam while they're there, of course. And what's changing right now, and is, you know, 62% of the cats and dogs in America are owned by millennials and Gen Zs. Now, that generation, they want their pet health care at the equal scale and quality of their human health care. They'll pay for it. It's hard for veterinarians to accept that. They're so used to, to a different type of client. And so now, uh, increasingly, veterinarians are being asked to do a lot more than just vaccinate flea tick do heartworm and send you on your way with, with a, you know, we'll see in a year or two. And, and I think that's changing. Um, but, but honestly, vaccinations are much less of an issue than they were uh, 10 years ago and even 15 years ago. So I don't, I don't hear about that very much. And I, I work full time in the space. That's a fascinating uh, trend. What else are you seeing that you find interesting? Well, the, the, the biggest change uh, I, at the end of March, called 10 people and we formed the uh, veterinary virtual care association which you might have called uh, earlier the veterinary telemedicine association and during covid finally the profession partly because it had to uh, and partly due to pet owners not wanting to be in physical contact with staff and so forth due to uh, the covid threat yeah and finally, telemedicine has really taken hold. So we formed an association modeled after the human version, uh, which has been running for 25 years with great success. And we've got over 3,200 members now. We just had a conference for five hours of great content with 3,400 people. Uh, 25 sponsors have jumped in. 
And uh, so I kind of launched that with some friends and colleagues that I respect very much. And that's the biggest change right now. The biggest change is that COVID saw people increase the number of pets in households and maybe as high as 20% of people got more pets or got a pet for the first time. And they wanted care, but they didn't want to have care in a clinic uh, with risk of uh, improper social distancing or whatever else people are concerned about with COVID. And so telemedicine now has a real foothold in the veterinary space. Um, and part of that, Peter, has to do with most telemedicine calls, human or veterinary, aren't about a medical issue per se. They're actually wanting advice. They're wanting consultation. We yeah. just got this puppy. Can we talk to you about this? How's this work? Tell me what I should look for. So what people want is professional expertise and they want access to it. Veterinarians forever, Peter, have thought that they couldn't charge for that. The truth is people will pay for it. And that's what veterinarians are experiencing now. So you've seen practices that in the early March part of COVID didn't know where they'd be in the middle of the summer. Yep. Now are up 10 to 20% above 2019 in traffic, uh, revenues, um, client engagement. So it's, it's really an affirmation that we've, we've reached a whole different level of the engagement with pets in America and what people want for their pets, particularly in the healthcare space. Yeah, and so quickly, it's really incredible. Does your organization work with nonprofit animal welfare groups? And uh, if so, uh, what do you see happening there, uh, yeah. good or bad? Yeah, we, I, I, I do a lot of work with nonprofits and for-profits. You know, people retain us to, to get you know, problems solved and, and usually it involves a group of stakeholders that we pull together and address an issue. Um, I think the traditional animal welfare groups, American Humane Association, HSUS, ASPCA, Best Friends Society, um, I'll be keynoting at a Best Friends Symposium in three weeks. And uh, my book, Pet Nation, is gonna be used as a textbook in a new course at the Southern Utah University that they're helping build for a master's degree in animal services leadership. So I think they're looking at there's shifting thinking finally that the issues facing American communities and the people engaged in animal welfare to protect American communities are changing. And believe it or not, we have a shortage of dogs in the United States. We don't have the problem we had 20 years ago of every shelter being run amok with too many dogs that, that sadly had to be euthanized. Um, there are pockets of the country that have that problem, but it's, it's shrinking. And right now the, the biggest problem is finding enough dogs to meet consumer demand with Americans that want to have, have a pet dog. Uh, it's less of a problem with cats. I think those animal welfare issues uh, are, are really complicated yep. uh, and aren't the subject of a, of a short interview, but we could visit about some time. But uh, I would say that's top of mind. And then I think shelters are retooling themselves as service providers to a community in the area of pets and animals I like that idea. I think that's, that's, a, that's a good step forward. There's expertise there that could be tapped for more than just taking care of dogs and, quote, managing dog populations, which was, in many cases, the original uh, thinking behind a shelter. One of the things I saw on your website that really intrigued me is that one of your clients uh, is the, or was, the American Academy of Optometry. And uh, you may not know this, but both Lori and I are uh, MD ophthalmology surgeons. So we're I knew that. Eyes. Oh, okay. Thank you. I, I did my humor, and there's still a there's still a client, a good friend of mine, is executive director of the uh, the academy, which uh, um, that's sort of connected to work I've done 
in, in the accreditation world. I also, besides getting veterinary colleges started or reaccredited, I'm engaged in the same with dental schools, with optometry programs, as well as with law schools. So uh, I've been, I do quite a bit of work in the accreditation field. You know, with all the, the talent and the bureaucracy that these schools have built in, it surprises me that they would need your, your services. <laughs> well, let me say the world is complicated. And, and I, you know, I, I get hired and I, I'm, I'm trained as a trial lawyer and as a lobbyist. And I've tried a lot of jury cases, complicated cases, and a lot of things that should happen don't happen. And a lot of bad ideas get some tailwind behind them and, and need to be stopped. And, and, it, and it's, it's a complicated effort and you need an advocate uh, and that tends to be what I do. And so there were veterinary schools that wanted to get started or wanted to be accredited and, and the door seemed to be slammed shut and you don't just get to ask for permission. You need to push sometimes. And uh, I try to do it with a smile on my face, but the truth is you have to be aggressive and, and, and you have to push for things. And, and that's fair. I don't, I'm not complaining about that system, but that tends to be uh, a lot of what we get asked to do, just like with telemedicine and veterinary medicine. It wasn't welcomed. People had to be prompted and pushed and educated and, and stimulated and stirred up, if you will, to understand the value of it. Um, and so uh, that's a typical thing that, that my animal policy group gets hired to be part of. You know, we're talking on Zoom, and uh, boy, it's a technology that just matured at the right time. It really is incredible, isn't it? You know what? Uh, I used to f I used to fly every week, literally every yeah. week, yeah. and uh, I don't miss it. And yeah. it's, uh, you can hear one of my cats behind me. It's you know they're they're wondering what I'm doing here during the day. It's like don't yeah. you need to go somewhere? But uh, no, I, it's been uh, it's really efficient. I think w whenever COVID slows down to some degree. I think we're going to evaluate every business meeting that involves travel and say, could we just do it by Zoom? And, that, and that's going to be, to me, a welcome uh, exercise. Well, we've been speaking with Mark Cushing, the book's Pet Nation, The Love Affair That Changed America. Mark, we look forward to speaking with you uh, further. Good. Anytime. I'm, uh, I'm not too far from you. If I understand where you're located, I'm, I'm in Paradise Valley next to Scottsdale, yeah. Arizona. So uh, feel free to reach out and congratulations on a good program. Thank you very much. Take care. More with animals today after this break. Okay, so now, Peter, I have a little surprise for you. Okay, great. Lightning round quiz. Oh, boy. Remember we did this about a month ago? It you was it was a surprise then too. I think. You scored like fifty percent. I give you C minus. Yes. <laughs> Out okay. <of> sympathy. <laughs> Listeners are going to play along. See if they can do better than Peter. You know, I didn't tell you this, but my my brother likes to play along too in Colorado. Oh. Yeah, he says he does better than I do. So let's see how he does on this one. Okay, okay. Rob. Me versus Rob and the world. And my fourteen year old nephew Gabriel is going to play along, oh, and really? he's going to score better than you as well. It's not that hard. Okay, ready, Rob? Ready, Gabriel? Here we go. What name is given to an adult female sheep? Oh, boy. And are you? Very good. Which English word derives from the ancient Greek words meaning cycle or circle of little animals? Wow. Um, don't know. Zodiac. <laughs> 
What kind of dog breed was Scooby-Doo? He was, oh boy, he was a hound. He was a Scooby-Doo, is, he still is, uh, a, don't know. (laughs) A Great Dane. Oh, really? What name is given to the small crustaceans that make up most of the diet of the blue whale? They are um, plankton? Krill. Krill, that's right, shrimp. In The Wizard of Oz, what was the name of Dorothy's little dog? That was Toto. What is the slowest animal in the world? Is a sloth. Very good. Three toed sloth. Jim Davis was the creator of a lazy and greedy cat that annoys his owner. What was the yep. cat's name? Garfield. Yep. What was the animal that starred in a comedy trio with Goofy and Mickey? Oh, what was the animal? Pluto. Donald Duck. Oh, okay. Do I get partial credit for Pluto? No. Oh, Why? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. What was Donald's fiance's name? Hmm. Uh, Daisy. Very good. Which bird is the universal symbol of peace? The dove. Right. Which large marine mammals are sometimes known as sea cows? Sea cows are manatees. Yes. In which country are lemurs found in nature? In Indonesia? Madagascar. Oh, yeah. Which intelligent medium-sized mammal native to North America has extremely dexterous front paws and a distinctive facial mask? The raccoon. Yes. Which farm animal comes out top in intelligence tests? The pig. Yep. What type of leaves does a koala use for food? Eucalyptus. That's correct. What kind of animals were Tom and Jerry in the Tom and Jerry cartoons? Oh, they were mouses. <laughs> no, is that wrong? You That's know? wrong. Okay. Tom was the cat. Jerry was a mouse. Oh, oh, did, oh. Did you not watch that? I, for some reason, I thought they were both mice as you were saying that question. But now, you know what? There is a it, there was a cartoon with two mice. What wasn't there? Uh, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. Okay. Which cat species is the third largest after the tiger and the lion? Tiger, lion, um, leopard? Jaguar. Jaguar. A female donkey is called a what? A, oh, I don't know. Jenny. Oh, you've already asked me that. I did. I'm the last that. lightning round and I'm, you got it wrong I'm again. Not reviewing my answers. <laughs> what kind of animals were Rocky and Bullwinkle in the Rocky and Bullwinkle okay. show? One of them, Bullwinkle was a moose. Very good. Rocky was... A raccoon? Like Rocky Raccoon in the Beatles song? Flying yeah, squirrel. squirrel. that's right. <laughs> what were the names of the two bears that lived in Jellystone Park? Mm, uh, Yogi. Yogi's one. And uh, Boo-Boo? Something Boo-Boo. Like okay. yeah. Good. <laughs> Alpacas are very similar to and often confused with which animals? With mm, llama? Llama is correct. A baby elephant is called what? Baby elephant. Hmm. A. Don't know. Calf. Oh, okay. Who chased the roadrunner in the cartoon? The coyote is after you. That's correct. What was the coyote's name? Wiley E. Yes. Wiley E. Wiley E. Coyote. Name the only mammals that can fly. Flying mammals are bats. That is correct. Yeah. The ragamuffin and ragdoll are breeds of which animal? How about, boy, uh, cats. Domestic cats is correct. I do not know my cat breeds. Don't care much for cat breeds. Well, you got this one right. Which animal's name means river horse in ancient Greek? Oh, river horse. Uh, don't know. 
think I asked you this one before as well. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so you're not learning from your mistakes. Hippopotamus. Oh, yeah. The name of the tiger who bounces around and is with Winnie the Pooh. Tigger. Tigger's correct. Which type of whale possesses a large tusk from a protruding canine tooth? Narwhal. That's correct. How do you spell narwhal? N-A-R-W-A-L. N-A-R-W-H-A-L. What type of bird is Tweety Bird in the Warner Brothers cartoons? A parakeet. Yellow canary. (laughs) I knew that too. (laughs) No, you didn't. No, I knew that one. What was the name of the cat who liked to chase Tweety Bird? Sylvester. That is correct. Sylvester the cat. What is the name of the phobia that involves an abnormal fear of spiders? Arachnophobia. Yep. What food makes up nearly all of a giant panda's diet? Giant pandas eat bamboo. Right. True or false? Giant tortoises can live to well over 100 years. Oh, so true. Yep. What was the name of the dog in the Jetsons? Rastro? Astro. <laughs> Astro. Okay. But I think you're right. He did Astro. <laughs> what kind of dog was Astro? Oh, no idea. A Great Dane. Another Great Dane. Okay. Okay, I give you a... Better than C+, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, disregarding the fact that you did better on cartoon animals than on real-life animals, B-. B-, you're a tough grader. (laughs) Okay, thank you for tuning into the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirscher encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Do you know what declawing is? People often mistakenly believe that declawing is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth because declawing is actually a painful surgery in which the last bone of each toe is amputated, including skin, tendons, and nerves. If performed on a person, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Besides the immediate risk of surgery, like infection and bleeding, the pain cat's experience continues long after the surgery, preventing them from walking normally and leading to arthritis. Often, after declawing, cats will stop using their litter boxes, choosing carpet, beds, or piles of clothing instead. And without their claws, their first line of defense, many declawed cats will feel stressed and begin biting. Plus, if your cat happens to get outside, she'll need her claws to defend herself from other animals. Most people get their cats declawed to try to prevent unwanted scratching and damage to furniture. But scratching is a natural behavior that is important for cats. Declawed cats cannot stretch or knead normally. Why would anyone want to take that away from a cat? The bottom line is declawed cats can suffer lifelong discomfort and disability. It's not difficult to modify the scratching behaviors of a cat, such as having a few sturdy scratching posts around the house and using toys and catnip to encourage their use. Did you know that many countries have banned declawing? And many veterinarians in the U.S. refuse to perform the procedure because it is unnecessary and cruel. So those are the facts about declawing. There's just no reason to do this to your cats. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org.